electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is the American Greed Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, one crafty con man makes some serious green in green energy. Rodney Haley exploits a government program promoting biofuels. I think Mr. Haley was surprised at how easy it was to make an extraordinary amount of money by doing essentially nothing. After selling fake energy credits, Haley takes spending into overdrive. On 6-1-2010, he gets a deposit from ConocoPhillips for rents he sells for $231,000. The next week, he buys a Lamborghini for $230,000. It's a wild shopping spree backed by stolen millions. The obvious question comes up when you see all these cars pulling in, in, in your neighborhood. It's like, what's this guy doing? And later, in America's swankiest zip codes, a cat burglar strikes in the dead of night. When I opened the doors of the silver closet and the bottom two drawers were missing, that's when I said, Eileen, we've been robbed. For master thief Blaine Nordahl, no window is too small. That's all the room that he needs. No wall too high. Blaine could probably be successful in any profession. He just chose to be a burglar, and he's good at it. For three decades, Nordahl turns thievery into stellar business. But how long can he keep it up? Blaine could be 80 years old, walking down the street with a cane, and he's still going to be breaking into homes, stealing sterling silver. The Fields of White Marsh is a quiet subdivision just north of Baltimore. When a young man named Rodney Haley purchases a home here with cash in 2010, neighbors like Rob Kamadari take notice. And one day, a big old truck shows up. I shouldn't call it old. It was pretty, it was pretty nice, pretty new. Then a Rolls Royce shows up, a Ferrari, a Lamborghini two Maseratis, uh, two Bentleys. Before you know it, there was 14 cars sitting in, sitting in front of our houses here. Soon, the quiet street out front begins to resemble a bustling luxury car lot. In front of the house down there in the corner, and they were front on this curb right here, down here. I mean, they were lined up. For me, it became an inconvenience or a pain in the rear because you're coming home from work, you're pulling up the street, and you got to work your way around this person, that person. You don't want to hit anybody. It was a nuisance. It was a big nuisance. Kamadari and others begin to wonder, what's going on with the new guy on the block? Well, I mean, let's think about it. You know, is this a neighborhood that supports 14 cars in front of your house? No, it's not. The obvious question comes up when you see all these cars pulling in your neighborhood. It's like, what's this guy doing? The story behind Rodney Haley's riches starts about 50 miles south in the nation's capital. In 2005, President George W. Bush signs legislation aimed at boosting the production of renewable fuels. Using ethanol and biodiesel will leave our air cleaner. And every time we use a homegrown fuel, particularly these, we'll be going to help our farmers. And at the same time, 
be less dependent on foreign sources of energy. Under the new program, oil companies are mandated to do one of two things. They can make a required amount of renewable fuel themselves, or they can buy credits that existing biofuel producers generate when they make renewable fuels. These credits subsidize the production of biofuel. They're called Renewable Identification Numbers, or RINs. As a result of the program and the credits that were afforded, a lot of individuals said, hey, this is an opportunity for us to make some money. And a number of people got into this type of cottage industry. One person who sees an opportunity to cash in is Rodney Haley. In 2009, he starts a company called Clean Green Fuel, where he claims to make biodiesel and sell RINs. To get a sense of the scope of such an operation, American Greed visited a plant in Georgia that belongs to a company called World Energy. Here, 30 employees churn out biodiesel 24 hours a day. They start with agricultural products, such as used cooking oil, poultry fat, or soybean oil. They mix in chemicals, then heat the mixture. The result is biodiesel. For each gallon they produce, World Energy can sell one and a half RINs, which in 2014 fetch prices of around 50 cents each, but have also traded at much lower prices. Gene Gabolis is CEO of World Energy. This is important stuff that we find alternatives to fossil fuel. And every drop that we make has to be produced, it has to be distributed, it has to run through trucks and rail cars and pipes. And these are pretty sophisticated businesses. Rodney Haley's sophisticated business is born in March 2009, when he registers clean green fuel with the Environmental Protection Agency. He says he's collecting used cooking oil from 2,700 restaurants and turning French fry grease into fuel. When he applies to be part of the program, no one from the EPA comes to inspect his production facility. The EPA declined an on-camera interview request. In an email to American Greed, they write that Congress did not require or fund the inspection of new facilities. They also say that it was up to those who bought RINs to verify their authenticity. Others see it differently. Rod Rosenstein is an attorney for the District of Maryland. This program operated like many government programs. It was based upon trust. Michael Iosa is a detective for the Baltimore County Police Department. It was more on an honor system that you were actually creating the biofuel or the fuel that you were supposed to for the RIN. Somebody like Haley, for example, he probably realized pretty quickly nobody was watching. That fall, the EPA lists Haley as a registered RIN seller. Any type of buyer could actually go into the EPA website and actually see that Rodney's company was in good standing with the EPA. Seeing this, brokers come calling. They would assume that Rodney was a legit business and that they were had no fear of buying his rents. Some of the firms Haley deals with record conversations between their brokers and customers. On this never-before-broadcast tape, Haley makes a deal. I uh, just call and touch base with you, see where you were, see what was going on in, the, in your rent world. I should have some more for you, I would say, I would, you know, of course, probably like Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, if you want to, you know, go ahead and agree on a price, 
Uh, you know, I'll buy however many you got. All right, man. I know it's around like seven, seven seventy-eight or seven eighty. Around seven eighty thousand, I would say around there. Ah, uh, I mean, I could do twelve and a half for them. I'll move those to you. Too bad. All right. So when I get back, I'll I'll send them over to you then. Haley has just agreed to sell seven hundred eighty thousand wrens at a price of twelve and a half cents each. To generate this many credits, he would need to make enough biodiesel to fill nearly 70 tanker trucks. It's a deal that brings in more than $105,000. At Clean Green Fuel, rins go out and money comes in. Middle of February, he gets 112,000. The end of February, he gets 217,000. As soon as this money comes in, he's purchasing cars. The money's never sitting in the account. In the fourth quarter of 2009, Haley sells RINs representing the creation of nearly two and a quarter million gallons of biodiesel. The next quarter, he says he's nearly doubled his output. Based on the numbers that we were able to collect, Mr. Haley would have been approximately the third largest producer of biofuel in the country. He was going for the stars. But at Clean Green Fuel, something's dirty. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Green energy has been good to Rodney Haley. In just over a year, he sells more than $9 million worth of energy credits. He plunks down thousands on vacations, traveling via private jet. He also spends big on jewelry, rents a palatial mansion in California, and pays cash for that home outside Baltimore, where he parks his growing car collection. In all my years in law enforcement, I've never seen a criminal spend money so fast. Mr. Haley was not scared about bringing attention to himself. It was almost like it was welcomed. In nine months, Haley picks up 25 cars, with a total price tag adding up to more than $2.2 million. He buys a Rolls-Royce Phantom for $149,000 as a surprise for his wife. In a single day, he writes a check for $377,000 for two Bentleys. He also purchases three Ferraris and a Maserati. He actually pulled up in a Rolls Royce the day he went to pick up his Maseratis. That's how flamboyant this guy was. And although he claims to be a green energy entrepreneur, the crown jewel in his collection is a Lamborghini Murcielago which gets just eight miles per gallon. As investigators will later see, his spending is a mirror image of his income. On 6-1-2010, he gets a deposit from ConocoPhillips for Renzi sells for $231,000. The next week he buys a Lamborghini for $230,000. As soon as this money comes in, he's purchasing cars. But who is the man making millions selling Renz? In talking to brokers, Rodney Haley tells quite an impressive story about his background. Just to give you a little history of me, eight years ago, I was a vice president for Bell Atlantic. I also worked for General Dynamics and, you know, 
plain and simple, I have an engineering degree. If it can be done, I can think it, I can do it. This is all a lie. In truth, Haley's fuel-related work record is not so impressive. In 2006, a police report says he's arrested for stealing gas and is given probation on a lesser charge. Three years later, he's running clean green fuel at a headquarters a few miles away, where he employs close to a dozen people. Mr. Haley's corporate headquarters looked like any other business. On the front, it said clean green fuel. We were greeted by a receptionist. You would assume that he was a corporate office for a large company. Oddly, though, the heart of his operation, his biodiesel plant, has no fixed address. At various times, he says it's at this rented garage or at this warehouse. And while a real biodiesel plant is a huge and complicated endeavor, Haley sometimes claims his plant is located at his home. Rodney's garage was a standard garage. You could actually put tanks from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, and you would never be able to produce the volume that Rodney claimed. There's no evidence that Mr. Haley ever had a plant that produced biofuel. In fact, all it was producing was dirty money that funded Mr. Haley's lavish lifestyle. If Haley has no plant, how then is he making RINs? It seems he's simply generating the long strings of numbers on his computer using a spreadsheet program. Most people would love this job. You sit at home, you look at your computer for an hour, you create some Excel spreadsheets, and then you send them to a company and they pay you millions of dollars for your work for an hour. Money for nothing may seem enviable, but by the summer of 2010, brokers begin to ask some pretty simple questions. What's the address of the plant? Good question, I don't know myself. Uh, yeah, shoot, it's 7500, some Pulaski Highway. Um, but I, I honestly, I don't know it myself. <laughs> I know that's bad. I know my corporate address. I don't know that address. Well, let me call you back. I'll get it for you. Okay. Okay? Yep. Give me a call back. With answers like this, the brokers aren't satisfied. A number of the brokers were curious if he actually had a facility. Because of the large volumes, there was rumor that maybe he wasn't actually a producer. So one of the brokers actually asked for some pictures. Rodney said, no problem, I'll send you pictures. Immediately after the phone call, Rodney searched the internet, was able to download a number of pictures, and then email them back to the brokers to pass off as his facility, but in fact, they were actually another facility. Around this time, civil inspectors from the EPA also come calling. Haley can't answer their very simple questions either. When somebody's primary business is producing biofuel, if you ask them where their factory is, uh, that ought to be very easy for them to answer. But Mr. Haley, in fact, was unable to answer even that basic question of where the facility was located. Haley first tells inspectors his plant is here, in the heart of Baltimore's fuel industry. But he can't show them exactly where. A week later, he takes them to a different location, this warehouse on the other side of town. It hardly seems a fitting place for a top biofuel producer. All they saw was three empty tanks, not even bolted to the ground, even to the point that his water source was a green garden hose that was hung over the rafters. Rodney had nothing that was even close to what a real facility required. Haley gives them the pictures of someone else's facility, saying this is what the place once looked like. There was obviously no production facility. They didn't find a production facility. But even then, there's no evidence that EPA 
took any immediate action to shut down Mr. Haley, and EPA didn't refer the case for criminal investigation. The EPA tells American Greed that shutting down a facility requires court action, and that their inspectors spoke to criminal authorities once an investigation began. But this was at least five months later. During this time, Haley sells more than four and a half million dollars in additional RINs. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. For more than a year, Rodney Haley has been making millions pretending to be a biofuel producer. But it turns out it's not the EPA he should fear. It's the neighbors he's annoyed with his overflowing exotic car collection. Rodney, by parking his cars, the school bus driver was so scared to drive through, he thought he was going to scratch or bump one of Rodney's exotic cars. And these moms and dads had to walk their kids all the way down to the main road to get on the school bus. In this particular case, a small community complaint turned out to be one of the largest frauds against the EPA. Baltimore County Detective Mike Iosa is part of an IRS financial crimes task force. In January 2011, he first receives word of Rodney Haley and his cars from a local police commander. He and fellow task force member Rick Henry examine Haley's impressive list of assets all of which are fully paid off. Yellow F430 Ferrari. This one was the Lamborghini he had, 230,000. And then you got the Maserati. That was like 170,000. They see that Haley is spending millions, but has no clear source of income, save for one. While Mr. Haley was running this fraud scheme that generated $9 million in proceeds for Haley, he was collecting unemployment compensation in the state of Maryland. In fact, Haley boldly uses the unemployment benefits to make a payment on his Rolls-Royce. But investigators soon learn it's another government program funding his wild ride. They look at his financial records and see millions of dollars coming in marked as payments for the sale of RINs. But they find nothing to prove that Haley is actually producing biodiesel. Throughout our financial investigation, you would look for different um, expenses for a real business, such as the removal of a byproduct or the waste of a large water bill, electric bill, things of that nature. We never saw any of that within Haley's company. Every one of his expenses seemed to be more personal than business-related. It's not long before investigators reach a simple conclusion. His whole company, his whole idea of making biodiesel fuel was a complete illusion. Haley's neighbors were once bothered by an influx of his cars on their street. One morning in May 2011, 
they notice a new batch of vehicles slowly rolling up. I think it was a Friday morning. It was like 8.30 a.m., and it was 20, I think it was 22 unmarked cars come rolling up the street. The feds have come knocking. Until now, neighbors have asked where Haley's money comes from. Now, there's a new question. What's a rim? <laughs> Number one, I had no idea what a rim was. Five months later, Haley is charged with wire fraud, money laundering, and violations of the Clean Air Act. He pleads not guilty, and in June 2012, goes on trial here at the United States Courthouse in Baltimore. After a six-day trial, it takes a jury just over an hour to find Haley guilty on all counts. The ultimate victims are the American citizens who were deprived of the benefit of the program, which was to produce biofuel and reduce reliance on fossil fuel. The one-time CEO of Clean Green Fuel is sentenced to 12 and a half years behind bars. The EPA says they've made changes to the RIN program to limit the potential for abuse. Now, the con man's house sits empty. His prized car collection is gone. And the orgy of consumption fueled by easy money has come to an end. Greed and common sense is, is what got Mr. Haley caught. If he would have been nice with the neighbors, not had 20 cars, he would have continued to do what he's doing today. Bo DuBose's home is tucked away amongst the woods on Atlanta, Georgia's northwest side. Inside, history abounds. My dad and I put together what was regarded as the largest collection of Civil War memorabilia ever assembled in private hands. One night in 2013, DuBose and his wife Eileen fall asleep to the sounds of a powerful June thunderstorm. As DuBose prepares to leave town the next morning, he notices what he believes to be a casualty of the weather. When I came out on the Monday morning to feed the birds, I saw that this window pane here was cracked. I kind of attributed it to the violent storm we had had the night before. When he returns home later that week, DuBose learns it wasn't the weather that broke his window. Eileen walked into the, the dining room and she said to me, did you move the cake basket? And I said, no, I don't think so, but let me look in the silver closet. And when I opened the doors of the silver closet, the bottom two drawers were missing. And that's when I said, Eileen, we've been robbed. The thief has left DuBose's Civil War collection alone and gone after one thing and one thing only, sterling silver. Among the missing items is an 18th century sterling mug that once belonged to George II, King of England. For the thief that took it and many other items, it's quite a haul. The insurance company wrote us a check for $170,000. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't cover the total value. Many home alarms go off when a door or window is opened. By entering the way he did, the thief avoided setting off DuBose's system. It was pretty obvious when we returned that this was the point of entry. And the alarm was on but it was only the perimeter alone, and coming through here would not trigger it. The thief leaves behind no prints, but he has left behind silver-plated items and knives with hollow handles. Over off the side of this far terrace, that's where he had left the drawers to the silver chest that still had the knives in them. 
as well as a Pacific cloth bag that had four or five Sheffield plate trays still in it. What I surmise is if he got this out the window, went down where he, the noise wouldn't be as obvious and kind of picked through everything to make sure what he was taking was all sterling silver. And he left what was not. DuBose is not alone in finding his silver missing. All across the South, many families learn they've joined an elite club. They've allegedly been targeted by a man who goes after silver inside the country's finest homes, a man known as the burglar to the stars. I said, well, at least we got robbed by the best. 20 years ago, Cornell Abruzzini works as a burglary squad detective in Greenwich, Connecticut. This is a gold mine for a burglar, especially for a residential burglar. Just outside New York City, Greenwich is home to the wealthiest neighborhood in the U.S. Any burglar worth his weight could come out of here with tens of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise within 10 minutes' work. Now a cop in Norwalk, Connecticut, Abruzzini has been chasing one such burglar for almost 20 years. For him, the case begins here. I was called to this particular residence in the month of August 1995 to investigate a residential burglary in which strictly sterling silver was taken. It was really nothing like we'd ever seen before so far as a burglary. Over the next year, he works five similar cases in Greenwich. In each, the thief figures out a way to get in without setting off a door's contact alarm. Now what he would do is he would take out, say, a wood panel of the door itself and not open the door because if he opened the door, there was a chance he's going to set off a perimeter alarm. Once inside, the burglar heads straight for the downstairs butler's pantry or dining room. He's looking for silver, and only sterling will do. So he carries his own testing device with him. Some pieces were actually tested to see if it was actually sterling silver or whether it was silver plate. Wearing rubber-tipped work gloves, the thief leaves behind no prints. But he does leave behind certain pieces of silver, some because of their size. No matter how you try to manipulate this tray, you can't get it out that exit point. Others are left behind because they are silver-plated, not sterling. On the way out, everything is left nice and tidy. You can see where he's taken out the molding that held that wood panel in place. And again, I could see here where the molding is stacked, all parallel to each other. Nothing he's doing here that's unscripted. Everything follows a pattern. Because most families rarely use their silver, the neat thief can go weeks before his crime is even detected. Abruzzini shows American Greed an example of the types of items the burglar might target. Naturally, we have the tray. We have a coffee and a tea service. And this would be an example of a creamer of this set. And by flipping it to the bottom, you could naturally see the designer's mark and where it was manufactured in the year of manufacture, which would be instrumental in what you'd be able to sell this for on the market so far as its artistic or historic value. Something like this normally would go in the ballpark of about $100,000. In Greenwich, Ivana Trump becomes a victim. Elsewhere, 
Other reported targets include Bruce Springsteen and Steven Spielberg. I don't think his motive was to hit specific people. It just happened that he'd be in an affluent neighborhood, and the chances are, being in that type of neighborhood, you're going to hit somebody with a lot of, you know, financial juice. Case files still crowd Abruzzini's home. For him, understanding the criminal means a crash course in high-end silver. There were certain items that would be stolen, which I had never heard of. I have yet to utilize a bonbon server or an even a ice cream fork in the Abrazzini household. At the six houses in Greenwich in the mid-1990s, the burglar makes off with approximately $400,000 in loot. And this is just one stop in a crime spree stretching for thousands of miles. We're seeing burglaries from Greenwich all the way out to the north shore of Lake Michigan and down to Palm Beach, Florida. All these points, it wasn't just random areas. It was definitely affluent towns that were being targeted. For the thief, it's a busy and lucrative venture. You're talking between five and $10 million during this two-year frame. As Abruzzini talks to law enforcement in other hard-hit jurisdictions, he meets a detective in New Jersey who's been tracking the thief for years. He actually had dealt with this burglar going back to, I think, 83. He looks at what we have, and he says, like, there's no question in my mind, the guy you're looking at is Blaine Norton. FBI Special Agent James McCarthy first began studying silver thief Blaine Nordahl in the 1990s. Blaine is one of the top burglars ever. Here is a cat burglar who could commit crime after crime, go through territory after territory, and sometimes not even leave enough clues so that people would even recognize that they were burglars. But Nordahl wasn't always so slick. The son of an artist, he first started hitting homes in New Jersey in the 1980s while serving in the Navy. Initially, he was just your nickel and dime burglar, breaking into homes, like stealing appliances, stealing electronics. Nordahl's greatness isn't innate, it's learned. Every time Blaine got caught, he would amend what got him caught and not use that again. For example, they made cases on him forensically by the use of tool impressions. After that arrest, he decides every night after I use my tools in a burglar, I'm gonna throw those tools out and use new ones. So there's no way of directly linking him with any type of forensics. As a burglar, Nordahl has two attributes that serve him well. First is his size. This is the actual size of a, a panel that Blaine was able to remove. As you can see, it's very, very small, and that's, that's, that's all the room that he needs. Next is his brain. I'm curious as to what his IQ is, because maybe once or twice in a career, you run into a burglar of the caliber of Blaine. He said he would target homes that had animals. If there's an animal moving in the house, there can't be a motion detector on because the alarm would be constantly going off. I mean, you're dealing sometimes with a spooky dude. Trust me. In 1996, Abruzzini obtains a warrant for Nordahl's arrest for the burglaries in Greenwich, Connecticut. That fall, with the FBI's help, cops take down the silver thief at a Walmart parking lot in Wisconsin. Even in jail, 
the master thief can't keep his hands off the cutlery. He stole a spoon from the cafeteria, and he actually sharpened one edge of it down, so it was like a cutting tool. And what he was trying to do was, he was trying to cut through the bars. And he went so far as to actually plan a jailbreak on one of the Sunday afternoons when the Green Bay Packers were playing, because he figured everybody in Wisconsin would be watching the Packers, including the prison guards. Nordahl's breakout attempt fails, and eventually he's extradited to New York. There, he works out a favorable plea deal with the feds. You tell us all the burglaries you did during this two-year time frame, and whatever you tell us, you can't be charged with further down the road. In these never-before-broadcast recordings, Nordahl outlines the wide swath of burglaries he's committed. Greenwich, we've covered with seven, okay? How many in Southampton? I put it at around 10 also. Okay, so do they. What townships in the state of Florida? Palm Beach and Miami. What was the attraction to Miami? Were you down here just I was just down here because there, it was cold up here. As Nordahl talks, the number of crimes he's known to have committed grows. He gave me 144 burglaries that he did in 36 different jurisdictions throughout the United States, nine different states. Nordahl isn't just pointing out jobs he did. He's letting law enforcement in on some of his mysterious ways, like how he selects a home. Before how I observe a place, if I feel comfortable with it, if I feel a way to get into the adequate, if there's the type of system they have, uh, there's all kinds of factors that have to go with comfortable with all of them. I don't think. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's just a sixth sense. Nordahl also explains what he does after he leaves a crime scene. The property from these three burglaries, what did you do with it? I took it to the yeah. Before it's even reported, you're the, gone. The best objective is you dispose of everything. You go to the crime scene at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning, even. It's already, it's already been done. Everything's been disposed of, property's already gone, done. Nordahl says he drives straight from crime scenes to a fence in the New York area. He was basically getting between 10 to 15 cents on a dollar. His payout for three hours' work was between ten dollars and $15,000 a night, which is not bad for a payoff. The thief says that his fence is moving the product overseas, and that it's going to people with wish lists. They wanted me to get porcelain, they wanted me to get oil paintings, diamonds, you name it. There was no limit. If I had gotten a Mona Lisa, I could have got rid of it. So why is Nordahl only taking silver? You basically access to the whole house. Why just stop with the sterling? Because I don't want any confrontation. So in other words, you're counting on the silver being stored in the dining room downstairs away from the sleeping quarters. Right. And if you were going after jewelry, you'd have to go up there. Right. I wouldn't do something like that. For cops, Nordahl is giving a master class in silver theft. I learned a lot from Blaine over the years. Maybe it's not that I respect what he does. I can respect the professionalism he brings to the table. Because of his cooperation, Nordahl is sentenced to five years in prison. On the east bank of the Hudson River, in a part of New York State that Franklin Roosevelt once called home, lies Edgewater. Dick Jenrette, a former Wall Street financier, 
bought the estate from writer Gold Vidal in 1969. Well, I bought it really as a second home. I had a place in New York City for my work on Wall Street. And I thought it'd be a nice retirement home, which as it turned out to be. Jeanrette plans to one day share Edgewater with the public. After I pass on to my next reward or punishment, whatever it should be, uh, it'll become a house museum. In the 19th century, the Donaldson family lived at Edgewater, and Jeanrette has gone to great pains to fill it with their possessions. He once traveled to Spain, where he tracked down many of the items that belonged to the home, including a silver set decorated with the signs of the zodiac. The silver had a lot of meaning. I mean, I'd done a lot of research and a lot of trips to Spain to get it, and it just, in one fell swoop, it was gone out the door. Blaine Nordahl walks out of federal prison in April 2001. Before long, he stops reporting to his parole officer. And in January 2002, he makes his way to the Hudson River Valley, then along a set of train tracks, over a wall, and into Edgewater. This is the entry point where Blaine Nordahl came in. He cut this glass out, and uh, this is one of five French doors he could have entered through. He chose this one, suggesting maybe he knew where he was going because he only had to come right up here to the silver cabinet. Among the items Nordahl steals is the Zodiac silverware Jeanrette tracked down in Spain. Nordahl hits another estate just upriver, and the story makes it into the New York Times. When Detective Cornell Abruzzini reads it, he calls the New York State Police. I said, listen, I might be going on a limb here, I said, but I think I know who's doing your burglaries. And the initial trooper I spoke to, his, his attitude was like, yeah, right. Eventually, with Abruzzini's help, police in New York arrest Nordahl. In December 2004, at the Dutchess County Courthouse, he agrees to a plea deal that includes an eight-year prison sentence. Before being locked up, he says he wants to go straight. When he gets out in 2010, he and his commitment to clean living head south. I believe he moved to the Florida area because he had relatives down there. I think another reason he moved down there was to get away from the detectives here in the Northeast that knew his M.O. so well. Not long after he shows up, Silver starts disappearing in Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama, and Kentucky. What they were seeing was a similar entry to what we had. In other words, panels were taken out or windows were taken out. And again, the only thing stolen from the homes was the sterling silver. He was back doing what he does because this is what he knows. You know, Blaine could probably, he could be successful in any profession. He just chose to be a burglar and he's good at it. Before long, a detective from South Carolina finds an old article about Blaine Nordahl and calls Abruzzini. Once he sent me his crime scene photographs and his narrative reports, I mean, you could take his crime scene photographs and they were basically overlays of my Greenwich scenes from the 90s. Word spreads among various jurisdictions that Blaine Nordahl is on the loose. And that brings us back to Beau DeBose in Atlanta and the June thunderstorm. When the alarm people actually showed up that Friday afternoon, he said, 
I hate to tell you this, but I know who did this. We said, you're kidding me. He said, no, it's a man named Blaine Nordell. The cops are once again on Nordahl's trail. And that August, he's arrested in Hilliard, Florida, not far from Jacksonville. When we first started investigating this, we knew it had to be a small person involved in this because these openings are no more than 12 inches by 19 inches where he's getting in. And Mr. Nordahl's about 5'4 and about 150 pounds. In two and a half years, Police say Nordahl has stolen an additional six to seven million dollars worth of silver from victims in six southern states. In previous cases, he says he was moving stolen goods through a fence to buyers overseas. Police say in recent years, he sent some silver to be melted down and sold merely for the value of its weight. What I hate is the fact that the real piece of history is no longer with us. And that's why I hope that somebody else owns it, even if it's not me, rather than have it melted. You just hate to think that these things are no longer there. Now, Nordahl is here in Atlanta, Georgia, awaiting trial. If convicted, the 52-year-old burglar could spend the rest of his life in prison. Though his career has certainly been lucrative, no one knows the exact amount of silver he's taken. It's definitely within the tens of millions of dollars. I mean, I'd say at this point, it's over $50 million worth of silver. Nordahl once said he kept 10 to 15% of the value of each night's work. He's a man who lived simply. So what happened to all the cash he's made? He's putting this much thought process into his method of the burglaries. So you know he's putting at least as much thought process into what he's doing with that money. Somewhere, this money exists. It's just that the connections haven't been made yet. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.